It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Thursday, January 20th, 2022, one year into the Biden presidency. One down, three to go. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Thank you so much for joining us every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. That's when we air live on our great affiliates and many ways to listen on the app, Fox Nation, the live stream, you name it. The one-stop shop for all of that is GuyBensonShow.com. And if you miss any of it, we have a podcast on demand after the show airs every day. It is absolutely free. GuyBensonShow.com every minute of every show, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. Listen to our lineup that we have for you today. We are busy on this Thursday. Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming. Uh, She has some, I would say, less than thrilled assessments of President Biden's press conference yesterday. We will ask her about that coming up later this hour. In the next hour, we will kick it off with Senator Mitt Romney, Republican of Utah. I would guess he's probably feeling the same way. I will ask him about the president's response to the criticism that he and others have made about comparing Republicans and people not willing to go along with this crazy Democratic voting scheme as akin to Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis and George Wallace. Biden denied saying or really meaning that. Is Romney buying it? We'll ask him. Dr. Jeanette Neshwat, one of our medical correspondents here at Fox News, will ask her about the latest COVID news. Mark Thiessen, longtime presidential speechwriter. He was chief speechwriter for President George W. Bush. We'll get his take on what we all witnessed yesterday live for almost the last full two hours of this show. We will get Thiessen's take coming up in our final hour. We will also chat with Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee, on the Olympics, on China, on the filibuster, and what the Democrats tried to do last night And more. That is all coming up on today's absolutely jam-packed show. We start with a Fox News alert. Stats, COVID cases, 68.5 million, a massive undercount. Death toll in the United States, cumulatively from COVID, people dying with or of COVID in this country, 870, check that, 857,644. Dow is up 54 points right now at 35,082. That is well off the session high. It was soaring earlier. Now it's creeping closer back to the uh, Mendoza line, back to no game. But it's still in the green for now, although it's uh, sliding a bit. Now only up 41 points. We'll keep an eye on that for you. Well, we were covering President Biden's press conference, as I mentioned, live. During our 4 o'clock and 5 o'clock hour, he went for nearly two full hours, a rarity. 
a very long press conference or any president. He doesn't answer these types of questions in, the, in these forums very often. So we were happy to hear the questions asked. Some, of course, were better than others. We will get into some of those responses coming up later on in the program with some of our guests. We have, of course, lots of sound of it. I reacted as it happened. I cut in occasionally live yesterday listening to the president. And there are a few big takeaways that I have. And we will get to all of that in due time. What I would like to do in starting the show today, however, is address something else that happened yesterday. Happened a bit later in the evening. And it's something we've been covering and talking about for months as the Democrats have been threatening to go down this route. And they finally tried. And they failed. Senate Democrats attempted to nuke the filibuster in the U.S. Senate. And I know that there are probably some of you out there saying no one cares really about the filibuster. That's a very D.C. Beltway thing. It's this uh, sort of abstruse parliamentary tool. You talk about it a lot. You're going to do a mono on this. Yes. Yes. Because what the Democrats wanted to do, and thank God they failed, but what they wanted to do yesterday was blow up a tool of the minority – that has been used basically forever in the Senate and used promiscuously by the Democrats when they were in the minority, that is a 60-vote threshold to start debate on most legislation and to end debate on most legislation and then get to a final vote. And if you can't get to 60, with a few exceptions like you know budget stuff under reconciliation, if you can't get to 60, you can't pass it. And the argument has been this helps build consensus, and it stops the country from just careening back and forth wildly on a bunch of different policies, depending on who in the moment may have won the last election. The Senate is a break on that sort of faction-based instability in our politics. That's what the founders intended. They designed the House to do their thing, and for the Senate to be different. And this is something that almost all the Senate Democrats very strongly believed, or so they said, when they were the ones benefiting from that tool and using it. Although even when they're in the majority, occasionally they have occasion to use it, like last week, for example, when they filibustered a sanctions bill that would have hurt Putin, which just blew my mind on on the program last week, and we talked about it. We had... A pretty strong sense that the Democrats lacked the votes to blow up the rules, which amazingly was only going to take a simple majority. If they had gotten all 50 of their members in line with the vice president there to break the tie, they could have broken the rules of the Senate to change the rules, which they had already done in a much more limited way. But they did this on judges back in 2013 under Harry Reid and Obama. They were angry at the time that the Republicans were using the same obstruction tactics that they themselves, Democrats, had pioneered. They loved doing it to Bush. They weren't happy when the Republicans did the exact same thing that the Democrats had invented years earlier, just a few years earlier, against Obama and his nominees. So they nuked the filibuster for judges. And Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, warned them, you're going to, in this admonition, he said, you're going to regret this and maybe sooner than you think. They didn't think they were going to lose the next presidential election. Of course, they did. 
And then the regret came swarming in. Oh, my goodness. They were just hit like a ton of bricks by the regret. And a bunch of them said it. Oh, we wish we hadn't done that. Oh, you know, I hate to say it. I guess McConnell was right. We regret that. That's not a good thing. But, and of course, they did all the regretting when they were in the minority. Now powerless to stop all these judges and three, count them, three new Supreme Court justices. Powerless to stop those confirmations. Because they were in the minority, and they had blown up that tool on judges. Too bad, so sad, your choice, you lose. But they said, we're not going to do that again. We're not going to make that same mistake again. Especially on legislation which is sacrosanct. We cannot change, touch, alter, even glance, askew at the legislative filibuster. Which is almost like of biblical relevance in the Senate. And they all said this with great passion. They all signed a letter, or 30 of them, out of the, how many senators did they have? 47, something like that. The vast majority, the supermajority of Senate Democrats signed a letter that said to Mitch McConnell, let's all affirm, and we are, we are committed to this, steadfastly was their word, to protecting this legislative filibuster. And Chuck Schumer said, yes, it is a guardrail of democracy. It is vital. He said, we must build a firewall around the legislative filibuster. We cannot go down that path. And a bunch of Republicans signed it, too. Said, yeah, we agree. Bipartisanship. We're not touching the filibuster. You guys got burned by it. Let's not go there again on something even bigger and more consequential. That was in 2017 when Trump was president. The Republicans controlled everything. And now, surprise, the Democrats are in charge. And within the first year of the new administration with them in full control of the government, almost every single one of those Democrats who had gotten up and given these long Jeremiads about the importance of the filibuster and, in fact, had participated in filibusters, almost every single one of them decided on a dime, never mind, it's racist, it's Jim Crow, it's an old relic, of the Confederacy and, you know, all this crazy rhetoric and our steadfast commitment that we were talking about when the circumstances were different and the dynamics were reversed. Never mind all that. Screw that. We want to do stuff. There's a voting rights crisis, which they just made up. There's no voting rights crisis. They work themselves up into a lather and a tizzy on this stuff as their excuse. If it wasn't this, it'd be something else. Right, they've been pushing exactly these quote unquote solutions on voting before twenty twenty, before January sixth, before any of that stuff. They've wanted to do it for a long time because they view it as a power grab for their own entrenchment of power and control. That's why they wanted to do it. They just have a new layer of excuses this time, a new veneer. But if it wasn't voting rights or some related panic to that, it would have been something else. Some other totally, hugely important thing that was so super important that they had to just do a 180 on their strongly worded so-called principles on the filibuster. They were looking for an excuse. Now, the question was, how many of them would there be? We knew that Manchin and Cinema, the two only moderates left in the Senate on the Democratic side, they were a no. And boy, were they bullied and hounded. And lobbied by the press. I mean, the press were acting as like left-wing activists. 
coming after them basically every day on this stuff. But there were some other so-called moderates who were reportedly very uncomfortable with wanting to do anything like this. They wanted no part of it. But ultimately, Chuck Schumer, in his glowing, glittering wisdom as a leader, decided, well, we don't have the votes, but let's put everyone on the record anyway as a big temper tantrum to try to satisfy the left-wing base barking like rabid hyenas for us. Let's just do a failed vote. Okay, go for it, Chuck. You know, who said that it'd be doomsday for democracy if they got rid of the judicial filibuster, which he then voted to do. It'd be a double doomsday, a bigger doomsday, the ultimate doomsday if they did to legislative filibuster, and then he was leading the charge on that too. These people, their word means nothing. Their positions and their principles do not exist. It is whatever is directly in front of their face with people screaming at them very loudly about power, power, power. And we saw that from 48 Democrats last night. Thank God it wasn't 50. Then it'd be 51 and it'd be over. It was 48. They failed, and I know a lot of people are celebrating that. Mitch McConnell gave a really good speech on it. I want you to think about how close they came to succeeding because all these people who are like on the fence, not really sure when the chips are down, when it matters most, every time they cave. It's the House and the Senate. They walk the plank for Pelosi and Schumer. Then they go home to the folks back home and they get all folksy and I'm going to drive a pickup truck. No, it's all BS. They are hardcore, power-hungry, ends justify the means, ideologue partisans who will do what they are told to do. And 48 of them expose themselves as radical lapdogs. And a couple of them in Arizona and Nevada and Georgia and New Hampshire and a few other places, they are up for re-election. And I want you to remember not just the filibuster betrayal and the lies that they told and the just shameless flip-flop. I want you to remember why they did it, or at least their reason why. Their reason why they had to flip-flop and completely abandon what they had said in that letter, including the guy who spearheaded the letter, by the way, Chris Coons from Delaware. He was the leader of the letter, and then he totally abandoned it. They had to do it because they wanted to take partisan control over the entire election system in our country by rewriting it with a bare majority with zero Republican votes and no amendments allowed either to get rid of voter ID, to mandate ballot harvesting, to force every one of us to fund campaigns of politicians that we don't care for or support. That was what was so important to them that they were willing to blow up the Senate to get rid of voter ID. It's crazy. And they did fail. And it was clear that they were going to fail when Senator Manchin voted the way he did and when Senator Sinema shouted her vote in favor of maintaining the rules as they are in cut 44. Cinema. Aye. She stood up in her bright red shirt and she shouted I. She had been bullied. She had been chased into bathrooms with cameras. They showed up at a wedding where she was in attendance. Ruined that. Threats, phone calls, calling her nasty names, ridiculing her on the late night chat shows they tried everything 
And nevertheless, she persisted. She stood up. She shouted, I. I'd like to think she was shouting directly at those people who chased her into a bathroom stall. You're not going to cow me. And what she did was she just simply affirmed her own position. Same with Manchin. They're the only ones who kept their word. They told voters, we're moderates. This is how we're going to govern and vote as senators. And they actually did it. Unlike all the other phony moderates, which is why people are so mad at them. The expectation is you're supposed to lie to your voters. These two kept their word and helped save the Senate. Thank God for the two of them. God forbid the Democrats win a few more seats because we know what they're willing to do. They've made it crystal clear and put it in permanent ink last night. They fell short. Let's throw them out of the majority this November. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. One more thought on this. You know, the Democrats, oh, they're the adults in the room because the Republicans are so awful and irresponsible and Trump and all of that. And look, some of the criticisms are valid, some of them aren't. But they are, we're the adults, we're the pro-democracy, we're the norms and institutions people, you have to elect us. Nonsense. Even some of the adults in the room, within the adults in the room crowd, who give themselves all sorts of credit for being just so thoughtful, and let's be cautious and careful and all, they all lined up, with the exception of Manchin and the Cinema, for this power grab. They are an institution destroying party that is obsessed with power. Amy Klobuchar, again, one of the more sensible ones, it would seem, she did a flip-flop on this. And during the floor speeches last night, the debate, she was railing against Montana. This is one of her big examples about the crisis in voting rights, which justifies the whole thing. Do you know that at Montana, they've had same-day voter registration. You can vote on Election Day right after you register. They've had that in Montana for a long time. Then they got rid of it. After 2020, isn't this terrible? This is a crisis. This is what these Republicans are doing. Did you know that New York has not allowed ever that practice, same-day registration? It was actually on the ballot. The Democrats put it on the ballot for the voters last year, 2021. It lost by 13 points in New York. No mention of that from Klobuchar, the Democrats. Red states, bad. Blue states, we have nothing to say for democracy or something. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast free of charge on demand. 365. Every day of the year. And we hope that you check that out. Again, no charge to you. 
Joining us now is Congresswoman Liz Cheney, Republican of Wyoming. And Congresswoman, good to have you back on the show. It's great to be back with you. Thanks, Guy. So we were both watching, I would imagine, as the president gave his uh, two-hour press conference yesterday. He was asked a few different questions about the situation developing in Ukraine and the amassing of Russian troops on the border. And there were a few things that the president said out loud uh, that were quite surprising to people. In Cut 18, he sort of plays the role of pundit here, musing about what Putin might do. I'm not so sure he has... uh is certain what he's going to do. My guess is he will move in. He has to do something. And by the way, I've indicated to him the two things he said to me that he wants, guarantees on. One is Ukraine will never be part of NATO. And two, that NATO or the there will not be strategic weapons stationed in Ukraine. And he says that he's pushed back on those things against Putin, but there was the president saying, well, you know, my guess is he'll probably go in. I guess there's been an, uh, an intelligent, intelligence rather assessment to that effect. But it kind of seemed like he was shooting from the hip there, the president. He then went on, Congresswoman, to talk about the lack of unity behind the scenes, really, of NATO, suggesting that there is not a united front that is at least being portrayed publicly for the benefit, for example, of the Russians. Biden was saying, well, we're not really there yet on unity. And then he said this in cut 19. And so I think what you're going to see is that Russia will be held accountable if it invades. And it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, et cetera. But if they actually do what they're capable of doing with the force amassed on the border, it is going to be a disaster for Russia. If they further invade Ukraine. So very bad things coming for Russia if they invade. But it kind of depends on the nature of the invasion. If it's just a minor incursion, well, that that might not be exactly bad enough to get everyone in line to do the harsh punishments that he's been talking about. And the West has now been threatening for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, This word, this minor incursion phrase landed like a lightning bolt like it's you know a thunderbolt in kiev and ukraine immediately their government uh was putting out statements talking to reporters they were shocked that biden said that the president of ukraine put out a statement saying there's no such thing as a minor incursion uh, or like minor loss of life in our sovereign territory i just wonder congresswoman how you felt when you heard the president saying the things that we've just played back for you well, Guy, it is it is complete strategic incompetence, just complete. Um, you know, and it's incredibly damaging. Uh, the president of the United States uh, is not, um, you know, a, a, an MSNBC analyst. The president of the United States has to lead. The president of the United States needs to make clear in no uncertain terms that if Putin takes a step that threatens the sovereignty of Ukraine, if Putin invades, that he will be met with swift uh, and overwhelming force and response. And that, that is uh, what deterrence is all about. Uh, when the President of the United States uh, stands in, you know, on, on live television and uh, contemplates, uh, you know, well, it might be a minor incursion, um, that, that it's, just, uh, it's just complete incompetence. 
And uh, and the reason it's dangerous is because it leads to miscalculation, because it leads to our adversaries thinking, you know, well, if the president of the United States is not willing to stand up for our allies and is not willing uh, to play the role that the United States must play globally uh, to ensure uh, the defense of freedom, to ensure um, territorial sovereignty, uh, to ensure that we keep our commitments, um, then, then our adversaries will miscalculate and our allies will think they can't count on us. And um, so I, I just, you know, it was uh, certainly one of those moments where uh, the, the president uh, really uh, absolutely failed to do what, what a president of the United States needs to do in the circumstances that we're currently facing. Yeah, the president of the United States, any president of the United States, is arguably the number one shaper of events in the world. And not some bystander saying, oh, gosh, you know, if I had to guess, he'll probably do this. And it kind of depends on whether it's a major incursion or a minor incursion. We don't really have our house in order over with NATO, so let's just see what he does. I mean, you say that Putin could maybe miscalculate. I guess maybe this is my cynical side. Would it be a miscalculation to assume that this would be met with weakness? Or would that just be perhaps the correct calculation that Biden has just sort of let out let out of the bag. Look, I think that that this is this the American foreign policy has been completely mismanaged, and um, I think partly what we're seeing is a result of the Biden administration's catastrophic decision in Afghanistan. Um, we're seeing, you know, globally uh, an assessment that's being made that that you can't count on the United States, and and your point is exactly right, and I think this notion of you know, the American president thinking that he's a bystander. Um, we have that problem across the board. You know, we're living in a moment where our nation faces serious crises and serious challenges, um, you know, from a national security perspective, from a domestic perspective, from a constitutional perspective. Uh, and we have a lot of elected officials across the board in both parties right now who think they're bystanders, who seem not to recognize and understand the seriousness of these issues, uh, not to understand that, that they've got an obligation uh, and a duty to lead. And and certainly the President of the United States is, is foremost among those who must be absolutely clear. You know, America's yeah. security, America's freedom depends upon American strength and power and leadership globally. And we cannot afford a situation where America suddenly decides that um, – you know, adversaries with a show of force are uh, going to be able to set the rules of the road for the world going forward. That's well, not a world in which we can be secure. The thrust of Biden's campaign in 2020 on the foreign policy side, his thrust here, you know, on the domestic side was, I'm going to crush the virus and I'll be more uniting and less dramatic than the last guy. Not going well. On foreign policy, he basically said, we need a president who can make sure that our allies know that we have their back again and that our adversaries won't feel like we're sucking up to them. That was, you know, I'm paraphrasing. That's basically what he said. That is also going very terribly for the reasons that you've just laid out in Afghanistan, now potentially in Ukraine. And I know that there's some reporting that that is now more concretely assessed that the belief of the U.S. government and intelligence community is that Putin... uh, does plan to move forward with some sort of an incursion here, some sort of an invasion into Ukraine. Last question on this subject, though, Congresswoman. There's a school of thought. A lot of Americans across the spectrum might ask the question, why should we care about Russia and Ukraine? 
why you know, it's not really our fight. We'd like to be on the side of freedom, and you know, I guess we're sort of with Ukraine, but, but why should we bother to get all whipped up over potentially sort of a regional struggle far away? Because it matters to the United States. It matters to our freedom, and it matters to our security um, that, that we lead in the world. And when we've made commitments uh, when we have someone like Putin who's attempting to bully us, who's attempting to, to force us to end our policy of accepting new members into NATO, who's attempting to force us to walk away from commitments that we've made uh, to NATO members, from commitments that we've made to Ukraine, uh, who's attempting to use force uh, in order to, to redraw the map of Europe uh, and to have his way, uh, both you know, through, through military force, through economic blackmail, um, through cyber attacks, through a whole range of actions, of bad actions. You know, those who believe that the United States of America can simply withdraw from the world and can simply sit back and, and in isolationism, uh, hope for the best, um, are badly mistaken, uh, and, and it's a lesson that we've learned throughout history. Uh, and the reality in the current situation is uh, that, that, the Biden administration has completely misunderstood and miscalculated and failed to conduct any kind of effective deterrence. Yeah. You know, the, the, the bottom line here is deterrence. You don't want to be in a situation where, where you are compelled to use force, but you, your adversaries need to understand that you have the capability and the will to defend your interests and your allies. All right, if you kind of welcome malign actors to do things based on the perception, perhaps the earned perception of weakness, and when there's a vacuum... On the global stage, if the U.S. recedes, someone else is going to fill it. Increasingly, that someone is China, and I would imagine most Americans would agree that would not be a good thing for the world, for China to become even more powerful and control more things than they already do. When we just played those sound bites, Congresswoman, for you from the president yesterday about Russia, he was talking about that, you know, the minor incursion quote that got a lot of attention. He said it sort of depends on what Putin does. Another time he used that word yesterday, he was asked about the legitimacy of American elections moving forward. He's obviously angry and frustrated that the Democrats power grab, federalize the elections and do all this stuff, get rid of voter ID, all of that. It didn't pass. It was killed, fortunately, in the Senate last night. But he was asked, will the 2022 elections and beyond be legitimate free fair in the United States, even if your preferred you know, democratic scheme doesn't become law? And he said it depends. He wouldn't commit to that. He was asked about it again. He sort of doubled down saying there are a lot of ways he could definitely see it be, uh, be an illegitimate election in 2022. The vice president was asked about this Earlier today on NBC News, she wouldn't answer the question. She would not simply say, yes, we will have legitimate free and fair elections in this country. She was doing the same game, sort of like this, uh, well, would hate to see what happens with our elections if we don't get our way and the Democrats don't get this bill passed, which, of course, is precisely what happened last night. It went down in flames. Jim Clyburn, a ranking member in the opposition party in your chamber, the House of Representatives, he was asked about this as well on CNN earlier. Cut 52. Listen. Do you agree with what he said in that press conference? Are you concerned that without these voting rights bills, the election results won't be legitimate? I'm absolutely concerned about that. He's absolutely concerned about that. So we've got the president, the vice president, and one of the leading Democrats in Congress sort of feeding into this big lie type of preemptive conspiracy about the elections in 
2022 and beyond. This is the party, as you well know, has been talking about how dangerous this type of thing is in a different context with the shoes on the other foot. Now it seems like they're they're leaning into this, even though the White House and Saki is trying to pretend, oh, it's not what he meant. We all heard it. He said it twice. What was your reaction watching that play out and watching this incoherent response from the Democrats at least flirting with this stuff openly? It is, it's utterly irresponsible, and they ought to stop it. You know, we, we have um, a situation where um, America's adversaries have attempted to delegitimize our elections process. You know, the Chinese government, for example, makes claims that democracy can't work, it can't function, it, it can't reflect the will of the people. Um, we have all certainly watched what happened over the course of the last uh, year when uh, former President Trump uh, made claims that the election was stolen, made false claims of election fraud, inspired people, incited people to violence on the basis of those claims. Um, and, and the president of the United States and elected officials have a responsibility to affirm public trust in our elections. Uh, elected officials in both parties have a responsibility to do that. We can work together to find ways to ensure that our our elections are as free and fair as as possible. Um, certainly, there are ways to improve our election process. Uh, there are ways that we can do that on a bipartisan basis. But the notion that any elected official would be questioning whether or not the 2022 election outcome is going to be fair, um, that would be attempting to delegitimize those elections, um, is acting in a highly irresponsible manner. Um, that that is is again dangerous to our democratic system, and 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 then they ought to all stop it, and we ought to come together and say, what do we need to do to make sure January six well, never happens again, uh, and h- how do we do? How do we find reforms that we can agree on uh, on a bipartisan basis um, that do not do what the Democrats' reforms have tried to do, which is federalize our election process? We've got to respect states' rights. We've got to respect the Constitution. Uh, we, we need it every moment to make sure we're doing things like we ought to be protecting poll watchers. We ought to be making sure people aren't subject to pressure. Uh, I believe we ought to have voter ID. Uh, I believe that we ought to look at what we can do to reform the Electoral Count Act. Um, there are important reforms that can be made, well, but, and yes, but they need to be made responsibly. Yeah, and that point is well taken. The problem with the Democratic approach from the president on down is they have locked you guys, the Republicans, completely out of the process. It's a, it's a totally slanted power grab that the Democrats have just filled with like a Christmas tree of left-wing stuff. It's almost like, you know, comical. It's like a, a caricature of what they might try to do. But they really did. They tried to ram it through a total rewrite of the system on party lines. Biden admitted, the president admitted that he didn't reach out to any Republicans on this issue, on the, the actual working together. It seems like that was not the priority. What they wanted was a partisan power grab. Last word to you on that point, Congresswoman. Look, and if you look at what's happening in the Senate, you actually do have Democrats and Republicans who would like to work together uh, in the House as well. Uh, but in the Senate, you know, uh, Leader Schumer won't won't advance those those reforms that there could be bipartisan agreement on. Instead, they're putting forward these massive bills that resemble, you know, H.R. 1 that, that the Democrats passed in the House um, that that present fundamental, I believe, you know, constitutional um, uh, constitutionally questionable reforms um, that that at the end of the day, you know, they pass on a partisan basis because 
Um, in my view, they federalize elections. They take power away from the states. Um, they give they give authority to a federal election and commission. The White House no did not reach valid. out to you on this working together no. stuff. They did not. They have not. They have not. All right, we'll leave it there. Congresswoman Liz Cheney, Republican of Wyoming, our guest here on the Guy Benson Show. Congressman, appreciate, Congresswoman, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Guy. Great to be with you always. Of course, and we will step aside and come right back on the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Still to come on the Guy Benson Show today, Senators Romney and Blackburn of Utah and Tennessee, respectively, coming up in the next two hours here on the show. Meanwhile, with the White House scrambling to try to mop up after President Biden and clarify what he said or meant on foreign policy and domestic policy and elections and all of that, at least they've got the border crisis under control. Oh, wait, they don't at all. They weren't asked about it. At least I don't recall any questions about it yesterday over two hours. But court documents reveal, because the administration is dragging its feet, putting out the numbers on their own. But in court documents, it has emerged, this was reported at foxnews.com, that in December, there were 178,000, nearly 179,000 illegal immigrants encountered at the southern border. That does not include the gotaways, known and unknown. And there's tens of thousands of those, so probably over 200,000. That is up from an already very high number in November, which are inflated more than 100,000 compared to last year when the surge started after Biden had won. This is still out of control at the southern border. We talk about it less. No questions yesterday. The crisis remains horrible on Biden's watch, and we won't forget it on The Guy Benson Show. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It is a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free. Joining us now is U.S. Senator Mitt Romney, Republican of Utah. And, Senator, it's great to have you back. Thank you, Guy. Good to be with you. Well, you've been speaking your mind on the Senate floor quite a lot in these last few weeks. Some things have been said by the president that seems to have irked you. And one of those things was uttered down in Georgia last week, cut 24. The consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be the side, the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? He was asked about that at his press conference yesterday. I know that you take great exception to the words that he used, as have other Republicans and also some Democrats. He was unhappy with the question being asked of him yesterday and insisted that you and others have it all wrong. That's not what he did. He wasn't making those comparisons. Cut 23. You campaigned and and you ran on a return to civility. And I know that you dispute the characterization that you called folks who would oppose those voting bills um, as being Bull Connor or or George Wallace. But you said that they would be sort of in the, the same camp. 
No, uh, I didn't say that. Look what I said. Go back and read what I said and tell me if you think I called anyone who voted on the side of the position taken by Bull Connor that they were Bull Connor. You have to speak from your heart as well as your head. Senator Romney, he's saying he didn't really say those things, and he was just really arguing that you would be on the side of those segregationists and traitors, but not really akin to them. Does that response and distinction satisfy you? I'm having a hard time uh, finding a difference in that distinction he's describing. If one were to say, uh, you know, if you do the following thing, you're on the side of Vladimir Putin. I think it's a pretty clear indication that you're <laughs> that you're not lining up with American values. And to say to someone, uh, because you don't support the bill that I support, uh, you're on the side of Bull Connor uh, and Jefferson Davis. That's, that's uh, and George Wallace. That that's a pretty clear indication of uh, well that, that someone is awful. And 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 that's it. Uh, and racist. And that's obviously unfortunate. It's where the president went. Uh, and uh, I can see he's trying to squirm out of it. But unfortunately, he did it. And it was highly offensive to a lot of people. Is this the same Joe Biden who said this about you and Paul Ryan back in 2012? Cut 48. I remember this. Look at what they value and look at their budget and what they're proposing. Romney wants to let the he said in the first hundred days, he's going to let the big banks once again write their own rules. Unchain Wall Street. They're going to put you all back in chains. I'm sure you remember that as well, Senator. Does he have this kind of propensity to race bait when he feels like he's backed into a corner? Well, that was clearly a uh, rhetorical flourish that got him in real trouble and and was across the line. Uh, I'm sure he recognizes that. And, and, you know, from time to time, he will do that. And, And, you know, when it's politics and you're attacking the other side, it's unfortunate. But what we saw yesterday was he uh, he went down a couple of roads that had serious foreign policy consequence and may result in dramatic uh, impact on American interests and on the interests of our allies. Uh, and, and so he gets wound up uh, and, and says things that are uh, really quite damaging. And I think in the case of what he said about uh, people being racist, if you will, that, uh, or, or suggesting we're in that camp, that that hurt his effort. I think likewise what he said about Ukraine uh, and Vladimir Putin and Russia, those things hurt us as well. Yeah. And speaking of that, let's listen to the quote that really got the most attention, at least on the foreign policy front, quote, minor incursion. This was cut 19. And so I think what you're going to see is that Russia will be held accountable if it invades. And it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion, and then we end up having to fight about what to do and not do, etc. But if they actually do what they're capable of doing with the force of mass on the border, it is going to be a disaster for Russia if they further invade Ukraine. If it's just a minor incursion, then there might be a fight within NATO, he said, about what to do. How did you interpret that? Well, it's, it's hard to interpret it other than uh, suggesting that Vladimir Putin can do some things uh, with his troops uh, and uh, that those will be uh, not met by as stern a response as if he does others. And uh, that's not a message you want to give someone that has over 100,000 troops lined up on the border as well as uh, extraordinary firepower. So it is unacceptable to, to uh, interfere in the sovereignty of a neighbor just because you're stronger. And that's what Vladimir Putin is threatening to do. So he should have made that very, very clear. He did not. He, he, 
you know, love the man for his heart and his goodness, but he, he does get himself in trouble with some of the things he says. And in this case, uh, he not only got himself in trouble, he clearly got Ukraine in trouble, got our allies in trouble, and got America and our interests in trouble. And it's it's terribly damaging and um, and very unfortunate. On the matter of Russia broadly, not to traumatize you, Senator, with multiple 2012 flashbacks. However, I'm so old that I remember you identified Russia as the top geopolitical adversary of the United States when you were running for president. And that was met with gales of laughter and scorn and ridicule, including from this famous voice in Cut 50. Governor Romney, I'm glad that you recognize that al-Qaeda is a threat. Because a few months ago, when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not al-Qaeda. You said Russia. In the 1980s or now, calling to ask for their foreign policy back. Because you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. Do you feel vindicated these days, Senator, based on your assessment of Putin at that time? Well, I, I don't worry about vindication. I know I was right, which is that uh, Russia at the time was our number one geopolitical uh, adversary in that they were blocking us in every initiative uh, we undertook. They were supporting the world's worst actors, uh, whether that was in Venezuela or other places, uh, North Korea, of course. Uh, that didn't mean they were our, our biggest threat. It's interesting how Sometimes people quote you, but they don't quote you exactly right. In this case, Barack Obama suggested that I thought Russia was our biggest threat. I said, no, uh, actually, Iran and al-Qaeda was our biggest threat at the time. But Russia was our geopolitical adversary, meaning they were playing geopolitics against us. Now, things are different today, of course. Russia still plays that role. But China is the greatest um, uh, challenge to American leadership. Uh, And uh, that is something which is increasingly clear, I think, to people on both sides of the aisle. And we're going to come back to China in just a moment. But you're right. Sometimes people will quote words or quote a paraphrase that actually distorts what was said. In the case of this interview today, we played the exact words of President Biden on Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis. And he's the one insisting that we didn't hear precisely what he said out loud for everyone uh, to understand what the meaning was on the issue that he was addressing in that speech down in Georgia last week, so-called voting rights and then advocating for the filibuster to be blown up in the U.S. Senate. That battle came to an end last night on the floor of the Senate, 52 to 48. Really by a thread, the Senate hung on to really its fundamental core as the cooling saucer of this process, our democratic process in our republic. Only two members of the other party voted with every Republican to maintain a tool, the filibuster, that Democrats have used hundreds of times in recent years. They used it last week, as a matter of fact. They have called it vital to our democracy, a guardrail. Chuck Schumer used that term. He said they had to build a firewall around it to protect it back when Republicans were in charge. 30 Senate Democrats signed a letter during the Trump administration insisting that the filibuster be maintained, as is, no changes, almost every single one of them. The only exception on that letter, Joe Manchin, flip-flopped and changed their position, really with the thinnest of veneers as their excuse last night, 48 out of 50. I just want to ask what your reflections are now that that experiment has failed, and also given just the brazenness of their reversal, on something that they were passionately in favor of, the filibuster, and then 
the first opportunity they had to get rid of it for their own expedient power, almost every one of them lined up to do it, even those who signed the letter, even the guy who spearheaded the letter, Chris Coons. They all did it, except for Manchin. Does that give you pause in trusting them to perhaps work with them on other matters in the future, given the value of their word? What I have learned uh, through my life, not just uh, last night, but over the years, is that when a person is confronted with an item of extraordinary personal interest, which may go against their fundamental principles, it's remarkable to see how the mind begins to work to rationalize doing what's in your personal interest. And that I see time and time again. And I wish I could say it's never happened to me or to anybody else I respect. But you've got to guard against it. And I'm afraid too many people went along, one, because they were pressured by leadership, two, because it was popular uh, with their base and with the people on MSNBC. Uh, and uh, I-, I was a little surprised that more people did not say, you know what, I signed a letter insisting on keeping the filibuster uh, only three years ago. I'm going to abide by what I said and signed at that time. And I respect, I'll tell you, I respect Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. I think they demonstrated some of the extraordinary, perhaps the most extraordinary uh, political courage I've seen during my political career. Did you say that to them personally? I did, actually, and uh, was able to shake uh, Kirsten Cinema's hand uh, before she left the floor. Joe Manchin got out of there in a hurry, uh, but <laughs> I saw him today and expressed that to him when I saw him. Our guest is Senator Mitt Romney of Utah on The Guy Benson Show. More with the senator right after this break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, joined by Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney. President Biden suggested twice during the press conference yesterday that unless the Democrats could get this federal takeover so-called voting rights scheme through... They want to do it with zero. And you pointed this out, I think, very well, very eloquently in one of your floor speeches. You said they want no Republican input whatsoever, no Republican buy-in. They weren't even allowing amendments to be proposed to a completely partisan rewrite of our entire election law regime in this country. And they want to break the Senate rules in order to do it. It's really a breathtaking thing that they just attempted, falling, again, just short of achieving it. Biden suggested that absent those changes that the Democrats want with, again, zero bipartisan uh, cooperation, he's not so sure if future elections will be free and fair and legitimate in this country. He was pressed on it about 2022 and beyond. He said that he wasn't ready to say that they would be legitimate. He said that they might be illegitimate. It depends on certain things. Kind of felt like some blackmail. Do this partisan radical thing that I demand, or maybe democracy will be dead. He was casting doubt on the fairness and legitimacy of our elections. He was asked about that same issue again on a follow-up, an opportunity for a mulligan, when a reporter circled back on it, but he doubled down in Cut 26. You said that it depends. Uh, Do you... Do you think that they would in any way be illegitimate? Oh, yeah, I think it easily could be, be illegitimate. Imagine, imagine if, in fact, Trump has succeeded in convincing Pence to not count the votes. Imagine uh, if... In, in regards to 2022, sir, the midterm Oh, 2022, I mean, uh, imagine if those uh, attempts to say that uh, the count was not legit... You have to recount it, or we're not going to count. We're going to discard the following votes. I mean, sure, 
it, it, I'm not saying it's going to be legit. It's the increase in the prospect of being illegitimate is in direct proportion to us not being able to get these these reforms passed. So the legitimacy of the elections in the president's mind depend on the so-called reforms that he wants being passed. They have not been passed. The vice president seemed to echo this sentiment this morning on national television. The White House press secretary says, no, no, that's not what they really mean. But the majority whip in the House, Jim Clyburn, said, no, that's exactly what we mean. I wonder what you make of these high-ranking Democrats sort of undermining Americans' faith in our democratic process and the electoral system if they don't get their way. I, I could have sworn that they spent the last year or so telling us this was the most reckless, irresponsible thing that a leader could do. Well, it is a, uh, a damaging um, uh, assertion, and we've been down this road before, uh, and that is that when you have a president of the United States uh, suggesting that uh, elections are Ill- illegitimate in the democracy, which is the leading democracy in the world, it doesn't give much hope for people in other countries. And it certainly makes people in this country wonder whether they should spend the time to go out and vote. So it's a very unfortunate thing to happen on either side of the aisle. Uh, you are right. Uh, the Democrats decried this when it came from Republicans and from President Trump. And yet they're going down the same path. And they may say, well, wait, we're not the same as Donald Trump. And that's true. They're not the same as Donald Trump. They're different people and they have different values and perspectives and issues. But they're doing the same thing and it has the same consequence. And the reality is that elections in our country uh, are not perfect. Of course, you can't have perfection, but they come very close to being as, as legitimate and fair as you can have. And the results that come up out of the election, which has been demonstrated by audits, are fair and accurate. Should Biden come out and say that and say I was wrong and I shouldn't have suggested otherwise? Well, I think uh, both President Biden and President Trump uh, had a have a policy of, of never apologizing. And uh, that's, maybe that's not fair. President, uh, President Biden did, did apologize for not having enough tests made in his conference yesterday uh, for COVID. But uh, I, I think it's unlikely that, that President Biden will come out and say that. But uh, he, he will he will certainly emphasize uh, a greater degree of confidence in the elections. And now that his favorite election reform bill uh, was defeated. Uh, and uh, and now we can actually talk about what things our country does need to improve our system. This improvement is always appropriate. But the idea that somehow our elections are illegitimate unless we get our way, that, that's simply unacceptable. Very briefly and finally, Senator, you mentioned China. The Olympics are upcoming in Beijing. We've talked about this before. You have a long history with the Olympics back in the Salt Lake City games. We've seen athletes being urged not to bring their personal devices for fear of spying and espionage from the Chinese. We saw a quote from a Chinese official threatening athletes if they speak out or do anything that would violate the spirit of the Olympics or Chinese law, that there could be consequences for those athletes. Your take on that briefly, sir. Well, first of all, I, th- I think it's irresponsible for the International Olympic Committee to grant an Olympics to an authoritarian state and particularly a state like China, which is executing uh, a a genocide in their nation, uh, which is repressing minorities and which has put in place laws which which threaten the athletes themselves. Uh, Sending the games there was irresponsible. And I know they've taken action. I've spoken with the head, Dr. Bach of the IOC, uh, about this. I believe they've taken action to prevent something of this nature from happening in the future. 
but we are where we are. Uh, our athletes have a tough decision to make. They're going to make it individually, but most of them have sacrificed their entire life to be ready right now to participate in the Olympics. And, and I don't want to penalize those, those athletes that want to compete uh, and do so representing our country. And frankly, I'm looking forward to hearing our national anthem played in China. Senator Mitt Romney, Republican of Utah, we really appreciate your time with us today, sir. And we look forward to next time we have a chance to chat. Thanks, Guy. Good to be with you. You bet. Mitt Romney on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. listening to a new generation of talk guy benson halfway through today's show it is the guy benson show i'm guy benson glad to have you along every day GuyBensonShow.com. that's our website if you can't listen between 3 and 6 p.m eastern there's a podcast for that it is free on demand GuyBensonShow.com for everything related to the program joining me now is dr jeanette neshwat family and emergency medicine doctor, and also a Fox News medical contributor. Doctor, good to have you back here. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Guy. Great to be with you. I want to start by asking you about some of the symptoms of COVID that can be kind of unusual for some people. Some of them are long-haul symptoms. Some of them are after-recovery symptoms. I ask about this because our producer on the show, Christine, just recently had COVID, she had gotten through it. She was feeling on the mend and almost totally better and then was absolutely hammered by what she thought was maybe a migraine. It got worse and worse. She actually went to the hospital, and she's fine now, thank goodness, but it was scary and very, very painful. And the doctors at the hospital said, we think this is probably a follow-on side effect of COVID, and that's not one that I had really heard much about. Is that common in your experience? Are there sort of weird quirks and symptoms that vary by person? It just seems like that's one of the scarier elements of this virus. Even with Omicron, you can't always predict how it's going to impact individual people. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is it is unpredictable because you can have a young, healthy person and they can become critically ill and you can only do so much to take care of yourself. But first of all, I'm so glad that Christine is better. Um, again, it is scary. I've taken care of thousands of COVID patients, guys, and actually one of the most common symptoms that I hear during the acute phase of the infection is severe pounding headaches. So wow. I get that not only, yeah, not only afterwards, but during the actual COVID um, acute symptoms, like when they come in, they're sick, they have they complain of a severe sore throat and a severe headache. That's what I'm seeing with Omicron. In the past, a little bit of a headache, a little bit of body aches, but mainly it was the lungs. They were short of breath or they had sharp chest pain and they would clutch their chest. But with Omicron, yes, I'm definitely seeing more headaches. Um, we have to remember that the, the coronavirus can affect any part of your body, your brain. I've had young patients who've had many strokes. It can affect your eyes. I've had one patient that went blind in her eye. Now, keep in mind, this is rare. And it can affect your skin. I've had patients with rashes come in. And then, of course, your heart, your wow. lungs, your kidneys. So any organ is, is not off the table. 
I, I'm just sort of amazed by that because I think you're, of course, right to talk about how the real concern during the sort of OG COVID, if you will, and even up to Delta was breathing and lungs. And that's what was really causing so much suffering and, and severe outcomes and people dying. People, it seems like, are not really dying from these pounding headaches. It's still a very unpleasant experience. Some of the disease does kind of mess with your neurological system, the taste and the smell component. That was always very weird to me. This is different than other viruses, different than other diseases. It feels different. I know our friend Kennedy has said this is part of her thought process of why she thinks this was not a naturally occurring disease, having been through it twice now in her case. But I'm trying to figure out why would a virus that is sort of known for its horrible calling card attacking the lungs in early stages, why would that also manifest with really intense or acute headaches? It seems like those are really different things. That's an excellent question. Here's why. Whenever you pick up this virus, it causes inflammation in your entire body. It causes inflammation in your nerves. It causes inflammation in your blood vessels. And we have from our aorta from our heart shoots up blood throughout every organ in our body, including your brain. So imagine a fire going on in your brain. We have what's called a cytokine storm. Whenever our body sees a foreign uh, object, for an antigen like COVID, it reacts. And so our body, it, it becomes inflamed and our body is trying to fight it. So think of it as a fire going on in your brain or any part of your body and our body is trying to put it out. And it's tough. And we can put it out with medicines like steroids, antivirals, aspirin to help prevent strokes, pain medicine, you know, ibuprofen to help reduce inflammation and pain. But because we have blood flow, blood vessels, arteries, veins, nerves in our brain, COVID can affect, again, any part of our body and cause this severe debilitating pain. And it, it can be serious because it can cause, you know, many strokes. It can cause blood clots. It can cause paralysis. And that's why, you know, some of my patients who are high risk and they have COVID, I'll tell them, I want you to take a baby aspirin. Sometimes we'll put them on steroids to reduce that inflammation so that they don't have these symptoms, these side effects. But you know what's the good thing, guy? We have medicines to treat all this right now, right. which is a blessing. It's such a blessing that you, you can be treated. We can get your pain under control. We can get you on antivirals if we need to. Well, especially to. compared to the oxygen. early days. Yeah. Right. Exactly. In those early days, we didn't have effective treatments, and then we've slowly but surely developed them. Of course, the vaccines are still proving to be very effective against severe illness and death from covid there's also, in addition to the whole array that you just mentioned, plus the monoclonal antibodies and other things, there's this Pfizer pill that's been approved. This is another sort of arrow in the quiver, right, that could be really significant where it's yet another treatment that could get us back on the path to societal normalcy or uh, approaching it, right? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I was so happy. I was able to actually last week for the first time prescribe Paxlovid, this antiviral, to my patients. And I can't tell you how excited I was to be able to give them this relief and not just send them home, you know, with vitamins and minerals and rest. But to know that my high-risk patient had an opportunity to stay out of the hospital, to not risk, you know, losing their life because I was able to prescribe this Paxlovid for the first time. What this, this medicine does, it's actually two antiviral pills uh, put together, and it can reduce your chance of being hospitalized and dying. 
by up to 90%. So that is truly life-changing. It's a game-changer. It's just a matter of getting more of this medicine on the market and having more availability. I feel so bad that I can't prescribe it to everyone that may want it because it's, it's scarce right now. Um, but the, the beauty of this medicine is that despite how many mutations that Omicron may have or Delta may have, this, this antiviral pill will still work because it doesn't target the spike protein of COVID. It targets an enzyme that the virus uses to replicate. So that's why it's so effective. And we just need to focus on yeah. getting more of it available to Americans. Oh, that's actually that detail to me is really encouraging. And I'd read that briefly, but I'd forgotten that this is going to be an effective medication or an effective therapeutic against this current variant and potential future variants of this virus. That's a big deal. It sounds to me, based on the scarcity point that you made, and others have made it as well, it's a criticism right now of the Biden administration. It seems to me like there should have been, and you know, that's in the past, but at least for now, should be moving forward proactively an Operation Warp Speed style effort to get this this pill and other similar treatments produced on a mass scale as quickly as possible. That seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It took forever to get the FDA emergency use authorization. And I was so happy to hear that it was finally approved along with um, Merck's Molnupiravir, which is another antiviral, but not as effective as Paxlovid. But it's always good to have more than one option because I've got to tell you, even though Paxlovid is highly effective, it was difficult for me to put patients on it because my high-risk patients, you know, some of them would have kidney problems or were on other medications like, a, you know, a statin or a blood thinner. And you have to be very careful that it doesn't cause an interaction and doesn't, you know, raise, you know, the uh, blood thinner in their body, which could make them hemorrhage to death or cause them to go into muscle uh, kidney failure by causing uh, what's called myopathy or rhabdo. Sometimes you have to be very careful with what other the other medicines they're on. So having these options is so great. So it's not just the antiviral pills. We have the IV remdesivir, which is an antiviral. We have the monoclonal antibodies as well, which is, I think, the best because you don't have to worry so much about drug interactions like you do with Paxlovid. But again, the biggest problem with Sotrovimab, I was trying to, to get it for one of my patients yesterday, and I, I didn't have success with that. We need more of that um, more than anything. In my opinion, that's going to be so beneficial, probably more so than the Paxlovid. Dr. Nishwat, yesterday on this show, I read briefly from an analysis written in the New York Times by David Leonhardt, who's sort of their lead COVID correspondent and putting things into perspective for New York Times readers. And he was laying out what he believes is good news, significant good news on the overall pandemic front here in the United States. He made the point about the vaccines and the boosters working well against severe infection and death. He led, however, with the two points. Number one, Omicron cases that went way, way up, of course, in the last few weeks are absolutely crashing in a lot of places around the country. The wave has crested and is I mean, just falling off the cliff in terms of case counts. And then he also said more and more data continues to come in affirming that Omicron is, in fact, less dangerous overall, broadly speaking, less virulent, less severe, less scary than Delta or, you know, even the original variant or the original form of this virus uh, when it comes to hospitalization and death. As a physician on the ground, you said you've treated thousands of COVID patients over the last two years. Are those observations from Leonhardt reflected in your experience 
in your day-to-day practice? Uh, yes, for the most part. But one thing I need to point out that's very important is that for those who are vaccinated, it is less dangerous. If you are unvaccinated and you're high risk, you're going to end up in the hospital. You may lose your life. I've had very, very young patients come in unvaccinated and they did not have mild symptoms. But every single one of my patients who have had at least two shots, maybe not their booster, their symptoms were mild. But for those, you know, I've had unfortunately, you know, senior patients not vaccinated and they lost their life. It, that is still happening. But overall, it is does seem to be less dangerous for most people who are vaccinated, who have at least two shots in a booster. And I do think that, you know, we are still in a better place today than we were last year, because although we have probably millions of active cases on a daily basis, um, the deaths are not skyrocketing. And we, again, we've got all the medications. We've got the monoclonal antibodies. Right, everything we've we just talked vaccines. about. Yeah, exactly. yeah, the arsenal. The arsenal is is much more robust uh, this time around. Thank goodness, and against a less virulent overall variant. That's a good combination. I want to ask you about masks. There's just all these angry fights about masks and school children in masks, and it, it seems like a lot of these standards are incoherent to me. We saw from the UK government just yesterday, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, who's in some political trouble for for related things, not necessarily this, uh, but he made the announcement in the wake of some of his you know scandals and controversy. He said that the government cabinet and their experts have looked at everything and they've decided they are just lifting across the board, basically, the mask mandates in the United Kingdom starting in the next week or two. Uh, we know that they had a lot less masking in schools really all along than we did. They still have some. That's going away. But it's indoor mass mandates elsewhere, just out in society as well. We've heard from experts like Dr. Gottlieb, for example, and others saying cloth masks and the commonly worn masks by a lot of people really do nothing, uh, particularly against Omicron. They are not effective tools. They've been described as face decorations. It's almost like a mental thing. People feel more safe in some cases. Of course, a lot of people want no part of masks anymore, especially if they're fully vaccinated or boosted. Uh, Where do you come down on this? Does it seem like maybe the period of time where masks make sense maybe is past? Well, yeah, you know, we have to look at a few things that are going on in the community. Is there a massive outbreak? Do you have a 30, 40, 50 percent positivity rate? Are you high risk? Then you probably want to wear a good quality mask until that surge passes, which, for example, in New York, it lasted about a month, four weeks or so. But if you're not wearing a good quality mask, either a KN95 or an N95, yeah, it, it, it's the cloth masks aren't going to do much good for you. Um, the surgical masks are a little bit better, uh, but still, you know, if if they're not fitted close to your face and knowing the size of Omicron, uh, part, uh, part the particles and the size of the mask, um, it may not give you much protection if you're so- just wearing... A surgical mask, but so what know, I'm hearing, I just want to make sure that I'm that I'm understanding you correctly. That your general guidance at this stage is the masks that might make a difference are these like fitted N95 or KN95 masks, and those would be perhaps helpful in communities with high levels of spread among those who are high risk. It, well, it, it can help anybody, but especially would be most important for those who are high risk. But we don't want to wear masks looking forward to the future. I mean, that's not going to I don't want it to be a part of our daily lives of wearing an N95. That's just not practical. Instead, let's try to get to the point where we're treating this virus like we do influenza. We never wore masks 
with influenza. We never did lockdowns or shutdowns with influenza. That's what we should be focusing on. But, you know, if you have a massive outbreak and you're high risk, sure, put on a good quality mask. But for everyone else, the cloth mask, the surgical mask, obviously they're not working because we have millions of cases a day. And most Americans aren't wearing N95. All right, got to leave it there for now. Dr. Jeanette Neshwat, family and emergency medicine doctor, of course, and Fox News medical contributor here on The Guy Benson Show. Dr. Neshwat, always a pleasure. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you, Guy. Have a good one. Be safe. You too. It's The Guy Benson Show, and we return after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. Still to come in our next hour, Mark Thiessen will be here to weigh in on yesterday's press conference. We will also hear from Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee. But first, Woke Tales. Woke Tales. I read this headline and I laughed. You don't even have to click. The headline speaks for itself, and it's just indicative of the ridiculous times in which we live. Eminem's characters to become more inclusive. You know the Eminem's characters from the commercials? The cartoon candies of every color? Not inclusive enough, apparently. So the chocolate company is making sure that they're tweaking the personalities of these fictional, I'll remind you, multicolored candy cartoons. I'm a big peanut M&M's guy. I don't know if they're going to change the yellow peanut M&M character. Maybe they can make Zer gender fluid. As long as they don't take the peanut out, I don't really care. But the green M&M, who's like the hot, sexy one, who's always flirting... I guess they've decided that that is not the appropriate girl power role for the green M&M, which I feel like they're kind of slut-shaming. I mean, the green M&M can be as flirty as she wants, quite frankly. It's her choice as a woman. Although, again, it's not even a woman. It's assumed to be a woman. It's a candy. It's a round candy. But I guess she will no longer be wearing bogo boots or posing seductively. She's instead going to be wearing sneakers, and she's calling herself a hype woman for her friends. Uh, I would love, actually I would not love, but part of me would be interested to be a fly on the wall in like the board meeting over at Eminem headquarters. Saying, you know these uh, candy cartoons of every color of the rainbow, a little too exclusive. How do we fix that? It's just the dumbest timeline ever. We're living through it. At least we're living through it together. On the Guy Benson Show, final hour coming up. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Happy Hour. 
Thursday edition on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day. Taking to the program tomorrow to Austin, Texas. Looking forward to that. In the meantime, the happy hour every day, no matter where we're broadcasting from, it's sponsored by The Long Drink from Finland, which is delicious. It is refreshing. I recommend it if you're 21 plus and if you drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com is their website. Big expansion into new states coming soon. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you or order online. As I mentioned earlier in the week, we just got our new shipment a few days ago. Let's get to our next guest on the program. It's Mark Thiessen, columnist at the Washington Post, Fox News contributor, AEI fellow, and also former chief presidential speechwriter for George W. Bush. Mark, great to have you back here. Good to be with you, Guy. I would like to get your assessment and analysis on a few things. For example, let's just start here. One of Biden's first things that he said in his press conference yesterday on his own performance as president, cut one. I didn't overpromise. And what I have probably uh, outperformed what anybody thought would happen. Well, he's overperformed, Mark. You have to understand. He didn't overpromise. He's outperformed all expectations. That is his belief. Meanwhile, we are now, I believe, on the fourth consecutive day that has seen a new poll emerge that has his disapproval rating at 56%. So he's pretty pleased with what he's done so far. The American people apparently have a different view of it. And I wonder, are there any upsides to that sort of delusional portrayal? Well, if he's overperformed, I'd hate to see what underperforming looks like. <laughs> uh, the, you know, it reminds me of uh, there was a USA Today Suffolk poll a couple months ago that asked uh, that showed that nearly half of the country said that Biden had uh, done a worse job than they than they had expected. And uh, I thought to myself, well, then the other half must think, no, I expected him to be this bad. Right, right. <laughs> Those are the two options, basically. I mean, it's been a disaster. It's been an absolute disaster. I mean, think about just a few, just a few highlights, right? Worst inflation in 40 years, supply chain crisis, massive labor shortage, 10 million unfilled jobs. He launched a war on fossil fuels that pushed gas, gasoline prices and home heating prices through the roof. Nine, $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. We don't have coronavirus tests or therapeutics. Uh, schools are closing again. Kids are five to six months behind in reading and math in 2021. Children, according to the American Pediatric Association, facing a record mental health crisis. Weaponized the FBI to intimidate parents instead of taking on the teachers' unions. Record crime wave. 17 major cities breaking murder records, many of them that had been set just the year before. I mean, and it goes on and on and on. The, you know, the, the, the worst border crisis in U.S. history. More than 1.7 million border encounters last year. Uh, fentanyl coming over the border doubled. Overdose deaths doubled. Um, you know, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the most calamitous foreign policy decision of any American president in my lifetime. Now Ukraine, uh, Putin, you know, emboldened by Biden's weakness, put it, put it, putting us on a nice as a land war in Europe. And now we have the green lighting of a minor incursion. And then he promised to put his whole soul into uniting the country. And instead, he gave a speech like last week comparing half the country to segregationists and traitors. Um, if, if that's overperforming, God help us if, if he starts to underperform in the next three years. Well, I mean, it, it's pretty obvious that his approval rating has taken a real nosedive. And he says he doesn't believe the polls, except he cites the polls when it suits him. It just is kind of a mess. And one of those polls, by the way, from the Associated Press, which again has his disapproval at 56 percent, 
four consecutive surveys nationally. That seems pretty consistent, Mark. That same poll from the AP asked the American people, would you like to see Biden run for re-election in 2024? And the response of yes comes from a very strong 28% of the public. Less than one out of three voters are watching this performance and saying, yes, more of this, please, four more years at this stage, one year into his presidency. I just don't know. I don't know what else he's supposed to say, I guess. You know, have you overpromised? Have you underdelivered? No, I did not overpromise and I've overdelivered. I guess that's the instinct of a politician. It just seems so almost sad and feeble when he's the only person in the room who's at least willing to say that he believes such a thing. Although, in fairness, the room is filled with journalists, so maybe they believe it too, but very few other people do. Well, you know, the funny thing, so his approval rating when he started, the no president has fallen so far so fast in his first term in office. I mean, in, in, in modern American history, since the, day, since the era of, of modern polling has started, he started out with 56% approval, 20 points above water approval to disapproval. He's now at 41% in the RCP average, 10 points underwater. So he went from 20% over above water to 20 to 10% underwater. But that's not, you know, that's not that, even that's recoverable, right? Because approval ratings come and go. You know, Bush Bush had like 70% approval rating after 9-11 and then went down, right? Approval ratings come and go. What's devastating is if you look at a series of polls show that majorities or pluralities of Americans think, one, that he's incompetent, and two, that he's physically or mentally unfit for the job. So it's, it, you can recover from disapproval, but you cannot recover from somebody thinking. from When, when Americans decide that you're incompetent, when Americans decide that you may not be fully there mentally or physically able to do your job, that is hard to recover from. Um, so I think he's, uh, I think he's in, in, in deep doo-doo, as they say. Well, and look, here's <laughs> the thing. In the polls, but, but. He's not on the ballot in 2022. Of course, his party will be in every House seat, a bunch of governorships, and, of course, Senate races as well. Roughly, you know, a third of the seats are up every two years in the U.S. Senate. And on the Senate races in particular, something that Biden said that caught my attention during the press conference yesterday was he was asked by our colleague Peter Ducey, Kind of this broad question, why are you bringing the country so far to the left? It was quick and succinct, and Biden sort of laughed at it, and he said, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not Bernie Sanders. And then in order to try to make the sale that he's not pulling the country to the left, although I think that's inevitably what is happening and unavoidably true, but I understand he doesn't view himself that way, even though I think the results speak for themselves from the rhetoric to the policies on down. But the president said to buttress his point, look at all the democratic senators who do everything that I tell them to do. Cut 49. If you notice the 48 of the 50 Republican Democrats supported me in the Senate. I'm virtually everything I've asked. So I think the point he wants to make here, he thinks he's making, is I'm a mainstream Democrat. What I heard, and I think what Republicans might have heard there, ad makers and campaign folks and uh, challengers to incumbents, is except for Cinema and Manchin, neither of whom are up for election this cycle, Biden is bragging that the 48 other Democrats 
in the Senate will do anything that Joe Biden tells them to do, and they are just robotic automaton rubber stamps on the entire Biden agenda. He thought that that was a good thing that was making his argument that he's a mainstream Democrat. I don't know, to my earmark, that sounds like an attack ad in the making, because you see the ads all the time. So-and-so votes with this politician 90% of the time, or whatever the stat is. Here you have the president himself at the microphone saying, I've got 48 automatic slam dunks in the U.S. Senate. That's Hassan. That's Cortez Masto. That's Mark Kelly. Right? That's Raphael Warnock. It's a bunch of these people who are up at you know, Bennett in Colorado. These people try to portray themselves as moderates and independents who are just out there trying to represent their states. And yes, they're proud Democrats, but when they need to, they'll disagree. Biden's out there saying it's not true. These people will do whatever I tell them to do. It seems like an opportunity for the Republicans to capitalize on the unpopularity of this president, trying to hook that unpopularity into 48 Senate Democrats, several of whom have a real chance of losing in November. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And, and also keep in mind that a lot of those Democrats, especially the, not so much Warnock, but like the, the Cortez Mastros and, 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 and others, that they are they're quietly hiding behind the skirts of mansion and cinema. They agree with them. They don't want to vote for this crazy build back better and all the, all the rest of it. And they're letting and they don't want to get rid of the filibuster, really, because all of them know that as, if they get rid of the filibuster today, then as soon as the Republicans take back power and take back the White House. Although, Mark, I just I just have to say you're, you're you're probably right. But I think based on the vote in the Senate last night, I don't care what they don't want to do privately. They did it. They did it. So. To me, their, their private hand-wringing means nothing now, because when push came to shove, they did exactly what Joe Biden said they would do, which is give Joe Biden everything Joe Biden wants. And I just don't think when you've got a president at 56% disapproval, that number is going to be uglier in purple states. When you've got a president of that unpopularity saying this incumbent will walk the plank for me every single time, that is true, but it's not exactly a great endorsement if someone wants to win again. No, 100%. I agree with you. He's basically calling them out as being lapdogs. And they've been what they've been doing is they don't want to vote for this stuff, but they've been hiding behind Joe Manchin's skirts. And now Biden's basically called them out and said, yeah, they they do whatever I ask. Yeah, he's like, look at all my lapdogs. Look at these lapdogs. Oh, what a good boy. (laughs) Look at all of them, 48 of them. Uh, That's kind of the vibe that I got there. And I think that could be a useful thing coming from the president's own mouth, not understanding it seemed in the moment that he was handing his opponents you know a hammer in the election last thing mark it goes to the legitimacy of our elections and i know the democrats have spent a lot of time and energy and breath and ink telling us that questioning election outcomes undermining faith in our elections is unbelievably reckless maybe the worst thing a major politician can do i happen to agree whether it's trump or stacy abrams they agree when it's trump not stacy abrams and apparently not President Biden or Vice President Harris, who have both, within the last 12 to 18 hours, I guess now 24 hours when you include the press conference, they have both repeatedly refused to say that American elections would be legitimate and fair and free if their crazy, radical election takeover scheme doesn't 
become law, which it won't, as we saw, thank goodness, last night in the Senate. They were sort of tying the legitimacy of American elections in the future to the success of their political program. Harris did it twice, including on the Today Show and last night. Biden said it in the press conference, got a chance for a redo, and doubled down. I know that Jen Psaki at the press conference today at the briefing said that the president does not believe that. And he believes that they will be legitimate elections in the United States in 2022, no matter what, even if these bills don't pass. But that's a mop-up job from an underling when we all saw what the principals, the vice president, and of course the president themselves just said. Jen Psaki's assurances are not, in fact, reassuring at all. Yeah, no, I mean, the, 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 basically every, every other sentence out of the White House communication shop is what the president meant to say was. Uh, you know, so, yeah, that's that on Ukraine and everything else. So, but you have to ask yourself, why would Biden spend so much political capital on a loss called like these election bills when he knows that they're going down, not because Republicans voted against them, but because uh, Manchin and Cinema won't vote for them? And why would he do it with such hyperbolic rhetoric, calling, comparing people to uh, to George Wallace and, and Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis? Why would, why would he do that? And then denying that he did it, even though he and did it. And then denying right? that he did it, even though he did it. You can listen to it. And also calling, uh, you know, people who oppose him the en- enemies of our of our democracy. Yes, I mean did that too. But 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 the two thing, there's two reasons. And the first one before which we knew before yesterday, which is that look, Republicans made significant gains with non-white voters in 2020, especially with African American men and young black voters. So Barack Obama in 2008, he won 95% of the black male vote. In 2020, Biden won 80 and Trump won 18 percent. That is a huge shift in the in the in the black male electorate. And the polls show that 21 percent of black voters, 18 to 44, supported Trump. If Republicans can start winning 18 to 20 percent of the black vote um, and they have put and they, and they put up a nominee who doesn't repel uh, the uh, the suburban white uh, college educated women, uh, the Democrats are done. So what they're trying to do is use racial dog whistles to drive these voters away from the Republican by, pay, by painting us as, as being racist, right? But then we learn the second reason is because they're laying the groundwork for claiming that the 2022 midterms were illegitimate, that, 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 we, that, we, uh, that Republicans stole power. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's... Oh, both but of Mark, to, to be clear, court. to be clear, says Jen Psaki, the thing that Joe Biden said is not what he said or meant. I mean, when you said that, because they were putting out statements in real time during the press conference already yesterday on Ukraine, for example, trying to clean up what the president uh, had, had just said on national television. And I wonder if this could become like a running theme or just a, a <laughs> tactic or a tool that Saki can use where she sits in on the interviews that he's doing or, or is sort of off over in the wings in any given press conference or press gaggle. And every time the president says something that might need to be revisited, she could just chime a little circle back bell. So the president saying something and she just rings the bell. And that means that they're going to circle back to that at some time soon. So that that's not our final answer. Please stay tuned. I feel like that might be useful so we can get sort of a does the president mean the words coming out of his mouth in this moment sort of real time indicator. What do you think of that? Well, you know, we, we wondered why the president doesn't do two-hour press conferences like this, and now we know. <laughs> yeah, we do. I mean, I give him credit for taking a bunch of questions and going as long as he did. Unfortunately, some of the things that were said 
will be soon forgotten. Other things, not so much. I think, as I wrote today at townhall.com, he did damage on foreign policy vis-a-vis Russia and sending a message to Putin, and that was resonating clearly in Kiev. He did damage to our polity by embracing the Democratic version of the big lie, preemptively casting doubt on upcoming elections because the Democrats didn't get their way. And he did damage to his own party, which I'm fine with, by bragging that he has 48 lapdogs in the United States Senate. And I hope the NRSC was paying attention to that soundbite. Mark Thiessen, former speechwriter for President George W. Bush, Fox News contributor, Washington Post columnist. He's got a lot going on. Mark, always appreciate it. Thanks, Guy. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Well, you've seen those clips probably that go viral occasionally of a reporter out there on a remote location with the lights on and the camera and the microphone and something goes wrong. Someone goes behind them and starts making faces or noises. A bug flies into their mouth, something like that. Well, this one was a bit scarier. There's a happy ending, but there was a reporter at WSAZ in West Virginia who was doing a live report and got hit by a car. Listen to Cut 47. Unfortunately, in freeze thaw, we see this water main breaks. Got hit by a car, but I'm okay. I just got hit by a car, but I'm okay, Tim. That's first for you on TV, Tori. We're all good. I'm okay. Yeah, you know, that's live TV for you. It's all good. I actually got hit by a car in college, too, just like that. Wow. I am so glad I'm okay. Yeah. You're okay. Wow. Uh, She is fine. Everything is okay. That is a scary moment. She's like, hey, it's live TV. We're fine. But look, it's hard to be on live TV in general under that kind of circumstance after that type of experience. I'm impressed that she was able to just stay even at all coherent again everyone's fine and hopefully her next posting her next gig will not involve anything like this she's been hit by a car now twice let's not go for a third time ever glad she's all right good for her we'll be right back after this break senator marsha blackburn on the other side Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. We are back. Yesterday, we had an opportunity to speak with U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee. That interview got blown out by the president's press conference, which was live all the way to the end of our show. But we wanted you to hear that conversation. So here it is, my interview with Senator Blackburn. She's written a book, Mind of a Conservative Woman. And she also hosts a podcast, Freedom Rings. Senator, welcome back to the show. It is good to join you. Thank you. I want to start with your thoughts overall with this big story. And it's really only a big story in Washington, in the Beltway, among politicians and the journalist class and a bunch of very loud activists on the left. But with the American people, it's really not that big of a story. But it's this voting rights crisis panic that the left has whipped up. And it seems like almost all of your colleagues, with a handful, tiny handful of exceptions, on the other side are willing to blow up the filibuster in order to pass a completely partisan takeover of our entire election system. I mean, it seems like almost like parody. It's, it's so crazy that they would break the Senate rules and blow up minority rights in the Senate in order to do something like this. It's very radical, but... 
a lot of your colleagues are sort of out and proud about doing this radical thing, and they say it's for democracy, Senator. What's your reaction? The thing that it would do is to federalize election law, whether it is your local, your state, or your federal race that is on the ballot. It would federalize that. It would do away with voter ID and signature match, and it would institutionalize mail-out ballot to everybody on the voter roll. It would uh, institutionalize and make legal ballot harvesting, and it would give the determination of who wins and loses to the federal government. And when I'm in Tennessee, people are not for this. They want to make certain that the ballot box, one person, one vote, that that is protected, that elections are going to be free and fair, and that they can trust the outcome of the election. They don't want elections to be manipulated. Well, have they given any explanation of who is losing the right to vote? Because they're talking as if democracy is like half a step away from the grave and all these people are going to lose their voting rights and the right to vote isn't going to be protected in America anymore. Like, what are they even talking about? And they continue to say this is about voting rights, but it is not. It is about using federalizing of elections as an excuse to blow up the Senate, blow up the Senate rules, and thereby be able to blow up the courts and the Constitution and the rule of law, make D.C. a state, uh, take control of your kids and education and your bank account and your small business, because they have an agenda. Remember, Barack Obama said they wanted to radically transform this country. They didn't do it during his term. Then Donald Trump was elected. So they're looking at the fact that later this year they're going to lose the midterm elections. They feel like they have a very narrow window to force their agenda. And the only way they're going to be able to continue to win is if they can control how the ballots are cast. Well, and that's the thing. It seems like they want to control from the top down the way elections are run with absolutely zero input from Republicans, every single Republican in Congress. From the most moderate to the most conservative, every one of them is against what the Democrats are doing. And it almost seems, because they're, they're going through all these show votes knowing that they don't have the votes as some sort of weird tantrum. It's almost like they are setting up a built-in excuse in advance for their losses that are expected in November, which to me sounds like undermining faith in democracy, which is exactly what they've been at least claiming to be very concerned about and angry, for example, at Donald Trump for doing. It kind of seems like they're setting themselves up for that excuse and their own conspiracies. Well, and they want to make certain they have total power and control. And this is how they think they get there. But there again, what is going to happen is they know they're going to lose this. But Chuck Schumer is concerned about AOC running against him in a primary. He feels like he has to do this. He has to have his members walk the plank on this one so that he can say he tried. We know 
that this is something that people don't want to see happen. They want to know that when they go to vote, it is their friends and neighbors that are working that ballot box. They want to know that their state is in control. They don't want the federal government jumping in and saying, oh, no, Tennessee, so-and-so didn't win. Somebody else won and making that call. Meanwhile, Senator, I want to shift gears to something we talked about yesterday on the program, which is the Olympics in Beijing. Some are calling them the Genocide Olympics. They are getting underway in early February. I'm sort of wrestling with what I want to do. I want to root for our athletes. I want Team USA to go to China and kick butt and win as many medals as possible and and hopefully come in first place uh, in the gold medal count and the overall medal count. Definitely rooting hard for Team USA. I'm just not sure how eager I am to watch these Olympic Games, given where they're taking place and the regime that's in charge of that country and the PR coup that they're being handed by the international community in the middle of stomping on democracy and lying about the virus and, of course, engaging in genocide. The list goes on. What do you plan to do in terms of these Olympics? And what do you make, for example, of the corporations, the American corporations that are all in sponsoring at least the coverage of it. Right. And when uh, Biden said he was going to do a diplomatic boycott, I kind of chuckled because I'm one of those that felt like, and I was saying a year ago, that we should have the Freedom Olympic Games in the U.S. so that our athletes did have the opportunity to compete and would be safe as they were competing. I'm very concerned about what you're going to see happen to these athletes because uh, they can't take their phones. We all know that. You don't take your own phone when you go to China. China is trying to push the digital yuan. They're going to surveil these athletes. I hope that their health is protected while they are there. Uh, I, I felt like that when they were talking about a boycott, that really China, the CCP doesn't care about diplomats. All they want are the TV cameras and yep, the, the corporate prestige. sponsorships. And they've got that. And they've got all the prestige and they've got the eyes of the world on them. And I know the athletes have been told you can't say anything or make any gestures in support of human rights. I know that we celebrate athletes doing all sorts of political things in this country. And that's fine. It's free speech if you agree or not. But they're saying none of that at the Olympics. Meanwhile, you have an NBA co-owner, I'm sure you saw this, saying that openly he doesn't care about what's happening in the genocide against the Uyghurs in China. He put out a non-apology after he got some heat. Almost nothing else from the NBA, a few sort of uh, vague statements, and that's it. It's pretty interesting to watch that unfold, Senator, because it kind of feels like there are some folks out there who are just saying out loud what the NBA's actual values are. Yes, and the fact that Adam Silver in the NBA has not come out, that the Golden State Warriors have not had something to say about this, uh, to say that you don't care about a genocide is unbelievable. And people cannot believe that they are hearing this. 
that there is someone who could do that and it would be accepted and kind of pushed to the side and the NBA would not come out and stand against it. You know, you think about what happened with the Holocaust. You think about other atrocities that have taken place. And then you hear this statement, and it is just appalling that no one is standing up and calling him it out. I said, you know, maybe he needs to go talk to Enos Cantor Freedom for yep. a while and uh, really understand the meaning of protecting human life and liberty and celebrating freedom as opposed to saying, well, they're conducting a genocide, but no one cares about the genocide against the weakers. Yeah, I mean, it's modern-day slavery. It's sexual assault and rape, forced sterilization and abortion on a mass scale. It is crushing a religion, in this case, Islam. It is going after people of color, minorities, and it's active cultural and literal genocide. Slave labor, I mean, it's just, it's a shocking array of human rights abuses being conducted actively right now by the Chinese government. We're about to go celebrate the world sporting community in this high-level event in Beijing of all places amid all of this stuff. And you have a prominent billionaire connected to an NBA franchise saying, yeah, the truth is we don't care about any of that. And the Warriors, you mentioned them, Senator, they put out a statement saying, oh, he doesn't speak on our behalf. We don't agree with his views. But that's it. They did not specify which views or why they disagree, because I think everyone's just tiptoeing around. And it comes down to money and cravenness and politics in far too many cases. We know that you are a frequent outspoken critic of the Chinese Communist Party, which is Good stuff and sorely needed. Senator Marshall Blackburn, Republican out of Tennessee. Senator, we appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. We'll take a break. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Home stretch on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. That podcast is free every day. Okay, if you are someone who is on social media, whether it's Twitter or Instagram, Facebook or elsewhere, there's a chance, a decent chance, that you may have encountered friends or relatives who are very into a red-hot viral online game called Wordle. And they post about it a lot. They post their scores, like these little boxes of different colors that other people react to like they have meaning. I have been confounded by this whole phenomenon. I have not played myself. Adam was actually showing me how it works. And I got distracted about 10 seconds into the explanation. So he texts some of his friends about it. They go back and forth. And I'm pretty sure, my understanding is, here at the show, none of us play this game. Producer Christine wanted to talk about this. She's out for a couple days. But she knew that people were posting about it a lot and was asking questions. She was not someone engaged in the daily ritual. Wyatt sent us an explainer from the Wall Street Journal, but he doesn't play. And Dan, you don't play either, do you? I actually just tried it. Oh, you did? For I, what, like for the first time yesterday or something? Yes, I did. 
And I got it within the first five tries, which I think is kind of good. I play a lot of these kind of um, riddle, these games with word, wordscapes, and, and I do crosswords, so I enjoy it a lot. All right, so here's what it actually is, per the Wall Street Journal, and I'm just reading. This stuff means nothing to me because I have not played. It's an online word game, Wordle. Seems like it's everywhere these days. And it is played and offered once a day. It's gone viral in recent weeks. It can only be played on the website. And I guess you can Google this website. That's the only place it's available. It was created by a guy called Josh Wardle, a software engineer from New York. He started the prototype in 2013 and really finalized it during the pandemic. The way that it's played is you go to the game's website on your desktop or mobile browser. The URL is powerlanguage.co.uk backslash wordle backslash. And the way it's played is simple, writes the journal. You have six chances to guess the day's secret five-letter word. Type in a word as a guess, and the game tells you which letters are or are not in the word. The game is free, has no ads. The aim is to figure out the secret word with the fewest guesses. What do the green and yellow squares mean? Because this is all I see, are green and yellow squares and black squares. And people post them. Like, they screenshot their own Wordle color scheme and then post it, I guess, to impress other people? I guess the way it works is when you submit a guess in the game, the letter tiles on this grid change colors to show how close you are to the secret word. If you guess, for example, the word weary, and the W turns green, that means the secret word starts with a W. If the E turns yellow, that letter is in the word, but not in that spot. Any letters that aren't in the secret word turn gray. It's not on an app. That's not an option for you. And I guess... There are people out there trying to find, like, shortcuts and tricks to impress their friends, which to me kind of defeats the whole purpose. Like, finding cheat codes, essentially, to make it seem like you're doing incredibly well at this viral game when, in fact, you're not. I That's a weird kind of undeserved boast, although... I'm not surprised people are doing it. That's part of human nature. I have to say, reading these things to you over the air right now, like I'm reading this journal piece for the first time, right now, with you, it does not make me any more inclined or interested to play this game. It really doesn't. What I am most excited about involving Wordle is when the craze finally passes by to the extent that people stop posting them on their Twitter accounts or their other social media feeds. With all due respect, and I have good friends who do this, like people that I like and admire, and I get it. People are into it. It's a big cultural thing, and it's harmless. It's not like there's any problem with it. I'm not opposed to it by any stretch. It's probably good for your brain to exercise certain parts of it. That's all fine. 
I just don't really care how good or bad you are at Wordle, and I certainly don't want to see your scores. But I'll see folks just like, you know, post this little puzzle of yellow and green and I guess black or gray, then other people reacting very strongly. How did you do that? It's like, I don't know what this means. I don't care. Am I being a curmudgeon? I kind of need a reality check here. And if Christine weren't out, she would certainly try to give me one, although I'm not sure Christine is the one, but Cookie, to dish out reality checks to anyone else. But I'm I'm noticing that I kind of sound like someone screaming, get off my lawn. Oh, these kids and their Wordle and their little gadgets on the computers. <laughs> I guess it's just the ubiquity of these images that I truly do not care about. So, if you're into it, and it helps you in some way, God bless and Godspeed. I'll take a hard pass. Eh, like a lukewarm pass. How about that? I'll take a pass. Here's my secret five-letter word, B-O-R-E-D. Back here tomorrow for the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show from Austin, Texas. We'll talk to you then. Have a great night. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.